Welcome to Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. Our team's goal is to present science-based information about gardening and all things nature in New York's Hudson Valley. Host Jean and Tim, along with team members Teresa and Linda, are master gardener volunteers for New York's Columbia and Green Counties. So if you're interested in gardening or nature or nuggets of information about what's happening outside your door, settle in. Enjoy the conversation. Whatever the season, we have something to say. Hi, I'm Tim Kennelty. And I'm Jean Thomas. And welcome to Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. Today we're talking to Allison Levy and Scott Serrano of Hortus Arboretum in Stone Ridge, New York. Welcome, Allison and Scott. Hi. Hi. Hello. Let's start with the basics. We know you own and created Hortus Arboretum. Tell us how you got here, your backgrounds, and how and why you created the Arboretum. The genesis really began close to over 20 years ago when Scott and I moved here from San Francisco and we bought an old house on three acres of property and we immediately knew that we wanted to start planting plants. We began initially by putting in fruit trees and shrubs and perennials and at a certain point we started planting plants for art material. Scott and I are both visual artists. And at that point in time, Scott was working on doing entomological drawings and he was studying different moths and dragonflies and different insects. And I'm an encaustic artist. I have a gallery up in Hudson, New York that shows my work. And I was interested in growing plants for interesting seeds like the lunaria also known as money plant or leaves and flower petals and and there was a point in time maybe a couple years living here where i discovered that scott and i were putting in the same plants just in different areas we weren't really talking with one another about (laughs) what should be planting And we were still a fairly young couple with a young daughter and we didn't have a lot of money because we're visual artists. And I was like, Scott, we need to get it together and and start thinking about what we're planting. Instead of planting three or four of the same thing, why don't we get different varieties of the same, let's say, salvia, or we get different species of the same plant. And when we started doing that, then it kind of opened this whole door to planting in ways that we weren't aware that there were all these different types of woody material out there that we were just, wow, look at the seeds of this and look at what this attracts this. Yeah, diversity. I would say that's generally been the theme. Things started out simple and it steamrolled and got <laughs> got worse and worse and worse and went out of control a hobby that went out of control often is the way i describe it and we began to plant for more and more diversity and it just kind of spread from art material then food material then just aesthetics, everything yeah, everything beautiful aesthetics and I think it got to a point maybe five or six years where we were hitting up all the wonderful local nurseries around here and seeing that they all 
had the usual suspects or the same genus of plants. And we were interested in planting things that we had never heard of before. And that's where the wonderful world of plant catalogs with nurseries throughout the United States that really opened a window into all the different plant material that was out there. Nurseries must be, to a certain extent, conservative. If they buy too many crazy things and nobody buys them, they will go out of business. So nurseries tend to have a, a recommended list of the things they know that are going to sell. And that makes sense. If you want rare things, you have to generally often go to catalogs, with a few exceptions. There are some nurseries that will take a few things. What you discover when you buy rare things is they come about six or ten inches. So <laughs> trees do not come six feet. They come six inches. What I think differentiates an arboretum and us from what normal sane people is, I'm willing to buy a seedling that's six inches tall and keep it for five or six or seven years till it gets larger and then put it in the ground. That generally means you have to take care of it in the winter and you also have to keep it watered and keeping potting it up to kind of keep moving it up and kind of as it starts to grow. It's really difficult to do that. It's very tedious. So we have a lot of plants that are not ready yet for to be put in the ground. And and arboretums are their their focus is to take rare things and to try to do that, basically. So I just love the evolution of this because like when you walk into your arboretum, I, I wouldn't know that story. It looks like something that you planned from the very beginning. I mean, I had the pleasure of coming. I mean, I would describe it as magical. It's such a very cool place and you all you both are so knowledgeable and answered all of our questions. And it was a wonderful experience. I would recommend it to, to everyone. I, I guess my question is, talk about kind of the mission now for the Arboretum, because I, I understand kind of how it came to be. But what's basically, what's your mission in, in having it and managing it? We often use the thing to be a textbook a living, a living textbook, textbook of life on earth uh. that could be grown in our valley. First it was food plants and then it became like magnolias. So we have like 20 magnolias and viburnums. So then we have 30 viburnums. And we want to have a large scale collection that represents the diversity of life on earth. And the last... That can be grown in the and, Hudson yeah. Valley. And well, also yes, but I have we have about 150 houseplants. So I have a subtropical fruit tree collection too. <laughs> that, actually, that actually yields some fruit and edible plants. So yeah, we're not. It's that's not rational, but yeah, the the majority of the collection is stuff that can be grown in our area. I'd say the last two or three years, we decided what differentiates a beautiful garden from an important garden, and I hope eventually we will be considered an important garden. And I think what differentiates a beautiful garden from an important garden is endangered species. So we begin to focus and get as many endangered species as we can find through seed or however we can get them and grow them out and to try to protect them and to plant them in our garden. And I would also then just add to that as part of the long-term goal with the Arboretum, how we see it is Ulster County does not have a botanical garden Arboretum. And we would like to give this to our county as their Arboretum Botanical Garden. 
And um, when we're no longer we're, we're, when we're in mushroom, <laughs> gra- mushroom bags in the ground. And so part of what, you know, instead of doing all the networking and, and meeting people and letting them know about this place, because a lot of times we hear like, oh, we had, when people come, they're like, oh, I had no idea you were here. Even people who are local to Stone Ridge in our area, we've decided that the work that we wanted to do was to put in the variety and diversity of plants and doing the research, figuring out where they would work best design-wise. And as Scott had said, a lot of times these plants that we are procuring, whether they're cutting seeds or a nursery where the owners are going to other countries and getting plant material, these things take a long time to to coddle and grow up. So our overall look toward the future is that this would be left to Ulster County and then could become a public garden. Okay, let me ask this. I am the Mm -hmm. queen of definitions. Now, we know you're an arboretum. And I understand that now you're officially a botanical garden. What what are the definitions of those? Well, an arboretum is basically a tree museum. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that things need to be labeled and cataloged. So every time we get any woody taxa, anything that's woody, not herbaceous or not a forb, anything that is woody, which is trees and shrubs, we take note of what it is, where we got it, where it's indigenous to, the year we got it, what type of, was it a cutting, was it seed? And then we have a file and so that you can go on our website and look at what our plant collection list is and get information that way. We also label things with plant tags, dog tags specifically, so that I'd say what 60% of, 60 to 70% of the plants out in the gardens have dog tags. And then recently we were fortunate enough to get a large grant from the Stanley Smith Horticultural Society. And so that allowed us to get species signs and larger display signs because As Scott had said earlier, part of our mission is to be an educational resource. And a little side fact is about a dozen years ago, maybe slightly longer, I too went through the Master Gardener program through Ulster County. And back then I remember being taught wishing that I could actually see the plants that different instructors were teaching about Mm -hmm. and not just on a slide. And I think that was real aha moment where I came back and said, Scout, you know, all these plants were growing. We need to open this up so people can see what they look like and people can come and get inspired. They could see what growing a big leaf magnolia tree will look like in 10 years so that they know not to put it right close to their house. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was part of also that inspirational getting people excited about planting outside the box. I think Allison's talking about me when I was there. I said, oh, is that how big that big leaf magnolia gets? Because I did plant it next to the house. So I think this fall I'm moving it. (laughs) No, it's super inspiring. And I think it's, for Jean and I, it's really a bad place to go because then we want so many more plants. And I think that happens to people, right? It's, yes. it's, it's, I know even yeah. people coming to my little garden, they say, oh, that's what an ironweed looks like. I want to plant that, or I don't want to plant that. So it's terrific. Right. 
The other thing right. I always get asked, and I'm going to ask you is, you must have help, right? Because that is such a, a big, big place with so much maintenance. You must have some help as well, yes? Yeah, I always say we squander our money on, on, on people weeding our plants, taking care of our plants. So when we, when, when we sell plants for the garden to raise money, and when we get contributions, when, you know, small contributions when people visit the garden on weekends, that money goes toward the people who weed and take care of our trees. Yeah, the I, maintenance I, work. And, and, and people, I think, are surprised by how healthy our trees are. We have really lousy clay soil and stone, huge stones in our soil like most people in our area. And our trees look really, really beautiful and healthy by and large. And I think that's because we take care of our trees. By that, I mean they're weeded consistently. They get compost around them each season. They're, they're just given love and taken care of. And so we try to do that to kind of really take care of them and treat them like princesses. In fact, right now we have three people, one volunteer and two workers, actually one worker who used to be a volunteer out right now while we're sitting chatting with you. Someone is working on giving the goji a little bit of love and someone's working on the lotus pond. So we are very fortunate. We've had workers. great part-time workers with us. Some people have been with us for over five years. And it's a real great opportunity for people to learn. We, we will take people with no experience. And as long as they're willing to be open and learn and, and be good listeners, we're, we're happy to teach. And that's part of, again, being an educational resource. And some people move along and do their own business afterwards after a couple of years, or some people move along and decide, you know what, that's way too much work. <laughs> I am not into that at all. So it really depends. And then in the last year, we've had a volunteer coordinator work with us because we always get people wanting to volunteer and it's a job just getting some organizing that. So we have someone who's been doing that. And in general, that's been great because people can come put a couple hours in. We might give them a couple plants as a thank you or cuttings or if that's something they're into. And a lot of people just like it for the, the mental health aspect, right? Mm -hmm. What a garden can offer. Initially, you randomly were collecting and, and planting. How are you selecting plants now that you've got a base? We know you've got the most diverse collection of plants in Ulster County. How are you choosing now what to grow? There's two strategies. One is refining what we already have and two is getting things we don't have for instance we have ballpark planted in the ground around 20 magnolias my wife will see a new magnolia cultivar <laughs> and swoon and want to put it in and i keep saying we don't have go to, to kentucky <laughs> we have to stop planting cultivars now what we need to do is rare species mm -hmm. We need to plant the species that are rare and endangered or difficult to find instead of just duplicates, a slightly different color duplicates of what we already have. So that it's refining what we already have. So I have about six magnolias that are not in the ground because they're, they're either too small or they're not ready to be planted that are rare species. So that's one aspect. And the other is to look for things that we don't have, genuses that we don't have anything from and trying to for diversity and, and sometimes th things that are way out of the boundaries because they're too tropical or things that might be right on the edge of surviving. 
we have several subtropical things that we've gotten to survive by protecting them and burying them with mulch and, and putting buckets over them for a couple seasons. Like we have Matia poppy, which is from Baja, California. And when I told the people at the San Francisco Arboretum I had been growing that for 10 years, they looked at me like I was high. <laughs> that's from the Baja Desert. And through mulching and putting buckets over that, we have a huge stand of it now that survived for about 10 years. And, and they don't get eight feet like they do in California, but they do get six feet here. And obviously they've grown so much that we can't bucket the whole thing. So <laughs> yeah, some of right. that is become hardy just through, hardy, through right. being thick rooted and big and monster plants. As I say to visitors, global warming is a real thing and the impacts are mostly negative. For a gardener, one of the things that you see with impact of global warming is the shift of weather patterns. And, you know, obviously we just went through a little bit of a drought, but it's also about what cold hardiness is and how cold do things get and how many days of those cold days are we still getting in winter. When we first moved here, we used to get like 20 really cold days and now we get two. Right. So in the process of living here, we've seen plants that supposedly were a zone seven or zone seven a closer to eight but somehow whether because we've sided them in an area that maybe that little pocket is warmer or that particular plant is a little hardier or stockier we've gotten it to live and one of the things in testing all these things both ornamental as well as edible plants is we found that we wanted to share the information to other people and get people who are like, okay, what else can I try? Or I'm interested in doing this. Did this work for you? And so being able to be resourceful that way and share information that way is, is really a wonderful gift for us. And, and because of a certification with the Morton Arboretum, Morton Arboretum we're on ArbNet, which means our plants are listed. So people from across the United States. All over the world, actually, because yeah, it's all over. Can it's come a, and see, international. can go on our website and see a plant and ask, is that done well? Did you did it survive? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. When you experiment with zonal hardiness, you lose sometimes and sometimes you win. It depends on the situation. And, and recently we were, I think it was maybe the beginning of this year, we were recertified for a second term. So each term is five years. So this will be a, the, our third recertification, but at a level two, it'll be our second. And that means we have X amount of woody taxa and a certain amount of staff because it's not just the woody taxa, it's also they judge by your institution. I think we would be a level three if it was just on our plant material, but because of we're still, I don't like to use the term mom and pop, but that's probably the easiest way to kind of convey what we're doing here. It's still Scott and I as the co-executive directors to this nonprofit. We're still very small. We haven't gotten that major endowment yet so that we could expand and I don't doubt that that will happen. I just don't know if that will be in our lifetime. So w one of the things that I was so blown away by is the, all the unusual fruiting plants you have. And I have this memory now that I can't get out of my head of standing under that mulberry and eating those 
really, really interesting and delicious mulberries. So can you tell us a little bit? I know it's really hard to always choose, but like you've had gojis and gumis and mulberries and all these amazing different fruiting plants. Can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of what your favorites are, or what people really are amazed by, or I, you know, if I got to pick children, I got to pick who my favorite. <laughs> yeah, you have to pick your children, definitely. All right, all right. It's Sophie's choice yeah. of fruiting plants. One of the joys is discovering unusual fruit. Sometimes we've waited 15 years and tried something and spit it out and go, "That's what we waited for 15 years." <laughs> I can't believe how bad that is, but most cases not. Like I love. Just rediscovering ancient fruit, like for instance, some um, Mediterranean quince is extraordinary. I had a fairly, I guess, plebeian diet growing up. My mother was pretty conservative and, and did kind of shopping from a store, so I didn't really get to try a lot of rare things. Quince, which is from the Mediterranean, is extraordinary. And um, we have Baltic quince cultivars, which were, which have been cultivated in Turkey and the Caucasus Mountains and the Baltic parts of Europe. And that has a flavor that to me is like pineapple and peach. It's like kind of split between a pineapple and peach and it's floral and aromatic. And if you cook that, and that's the thing because it's a cooked fruit, a lot of people don't associate fruit with being cooked. So it's not uh, cultivated because it can't just be stuck in your mouth. If you cook quince down, and add that to like applesauce, it tastes like you've had applesauce that someone has poured peaches and pineapple juice into and it smells like flowers. It's 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 divine. I don't think I've ever had anything like that. We're getting in our and, car right now to come over, I yes. think, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 that, and that to things like pawpaw, which is now uh, experiencing a cultural renaissance in the United States right. for good reason. It was sort of neglected. Because of the New York Times and several good books on pawpaws, then that's now become a popular fruit again, and that's an extraordinary native. Fruit. It's a great native tree. Yeah, in our book, which I'm sure you'll talk about later, uh, uh, cold hardy fruits and nuts. The whole idea of that book is that things that don't have to be sprayed, which is why apples and peaches are not in our book. We've had a had pawpaw trees maybe for close to 20 years, and that has never been hit by a pest, never even once. Even animals and critters, they'll take a few of our pawpaws, but the trees are not stripped. Whether we have drought or we have wet too much rain, the trees do incredible. Same thing with American persimmons, another great fruit that is 99% pest-free. They're really great. They should be planted a lot more than they are. I would say for me, one is a fairly common, but uh, the w- which would be black raspberry, and I like a cultivated one um, that's called Allen. And the reason I like it is I love the wild black raspberries. Unfortunately, after a while, patches get a rust. It's just what happens in our area. The cultivated types they produce fruit that's maybe, they're cultivated, right? So that they produce fruits that are maybe two to three times larger than the wild berries that you see growing along the edges of forest or disturbed areas. The fruits tend to come out about a week or two after our our wild ones. And they last maybe two to three weeks and they have all of the same flavor. They're just delicious. And that's something that I feel like most people should be growing 
that they they don't because you would never find a black raspberry even at your local farmer's market. You might find red raspberries, but black ones, no. And they just have that special sunshine summer flavor. And they're easy and then, to they're easy yeah. to grow too, right? I mean, they're fairly yeah, easy to grow. Yeah, yeah. easy to grow. Yeah. And then another less known would be schizandra. It's a vine that grows in a mostly shaded spot. So that's really great plant for people who don't have a lot of sunlight or are looking to grow something that is unique or individual. And it's it's not a fruit that is to everyone's liking fresh. I, I love it. It's bitter. It's salty. It's sweet. It's actually called the five flavor berry. It's a Chinese top 50 plant but i'm sorry i, I kind of messed it's, that up it's, it's one of the, the 50, 50 fundamental herbs medicinal herbs, herbs that in um chinese medicine but i like it because you can use the fruit and you can use it fresh and with a little bit of a sweetener you can make a great drink whether it's just like a non-alcoholic beverage that tastes like pink lemonade or if you wanted to start doing your, you know, mixology thing, you have this great pink berry that has this lemon peel flavor to it. It also works great as a dried fruit. And then look, if you didn't like how it tastes, it's gorgeous vine. In fact, it was introduced because it's known as the mag magnolia vine or its little flowers in the spring that look like miniature magnolia flowers. It sounds like it would be good with vodka to me. All right, now we've clearly got into about chapter three of the book, so yeah. let's just <laughs> not, not ask you specific questions on fruit, except I'm madly in love with Medler. And yeah, I've seen yeah. it at Bartram's Garden about a week ago. And oh my gosh, I want at least six of them. I was going to say when Scott was talking about growing up with his mother, did she not serve you Medlar at dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it's sometimes called open arse for the medieval name for it looks like a horse's rear end, which is, best, which is the best medieval supermarket name. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's got the best the best story behind it. It's medieval. It does all kinds yeah. of awful stuff. It has to rot and all kinds of weird things. It's really cool. It's my kind of fruit. The best thing, medlar is bleded, which is almost rotting. It's not quite rotting, but very close to it. It softens and gets mushy, and it tastes like cinnamon, applesauce, and cloves. But the best thing about it is people recommended we stop doing that and just let it shrivel up on our trees. So we actually hike out through the snow in January <laughs> oh, and February boy. and pick it off of our tree and bring it in and thaw it out. And because it's chestnut brown, it doesn't say to birds, come and eat me, come right. and eat me, I'm red. It tends to be left alone through most of the winter. And the foliage is gorgeous. Yeah. The foliage is beautiful, yeah. as you said, as are the flowers, which are like these large... Little, little roses, camellias. Yeah. yeah. They're not little, Yeah, actually. they're beautiful. They're, they're beautiful, simple white flowers. That are, <sighs> I'm yes. satisfied. We talked about my favorite. Now let's talk about the book. <laughs> yeah, the book is wonderful. Your book is beautiful. Tell us about your book, how it came to be and where people can get it, what, what's in it sure. and where people can Thank find you. it. Thank you. Well, if you were going to plan a visit to the Arboretum, we sell the books here and we can talk about uh, the Arboretum and how to visit um, in a moment. The books also are available through the publishing house, which is Chelsea Green Publishers, so you can order online. I know some of the local bookstores like Oblong Books that are located in Rhinebeck and then 
the rough draft. draft in Kingston also has copies. And of course, you can always go to the dreaded big Amazon and order there as well. Um, and, Barnes, and, Barnes and Barnes and Noble. And Thank you. Then, yeah, locally, the Barnes and Noble in both Kingston and Poughkeepsie has copies. Or and all just ask for it. And the name it of the book is, makes- and the, the name of your book is Cold Hardy Fruits and Nuts, correct? Yes, yes. The second part of the title is 50 Low Maintenance Fruiting Plants for the Home Garden, or I forget the other part. 50 thing, but- Easy to Grow Plants for the Organic Home Garden or Landscape. Thank you, Jean. So <laughs> that actually, for me, that really should have been the main title, because that was really the impetus for writing the book. As Scott said earlier, we side gig as landscapers, which is how we learned also a lot about plants, some working on plants at other people's gardens. And one of the things we're constantly were asked about is why is my peach tree dying or why doesn't my apple tree produce fruit? And over the years, we have formed our own opinions of why that is. And we were making recommendations about why don't you plant a medlar? It's never given us one problem and you have delicious fruit. Or go ahead and plant goji if you have this kind of an area. So the real impetus was the book was to kind of share all the things we do on a tour, but to go into a lot more detail, the cultural aspects, zonal aspects, a little bit of the history And really it came about because I tried to do a daily posting on Instagram and educationally based. And a couple years ago, I did a post on a kibia fruit and it's a wild looking fruit. And when the fruit splits open late August, early September, the insides, it's a purpley blue fruit. It's also called sometimes sausage, purple sausage vine and has some weird names. Well, when I posted about it online, Chelsea Green, someone who was doing their Instagram feed, saw it and reposted it on their account. And then that became such a, I guess, well-liked post that then they they said at the end of the year that it was like their top nine. And so they gave it another shout out. And so at that point, I reached out and just messaged them and said, hey, we're, we're going to be writing a book. Would you be willing to look at our manuscript? And they said, sure. And then fast forward a year, I reached out again. Hey, we're in the middle of writing the beginnings of our book. Would you be interested? And they said, sure, send us a proposal. And really, we sent a proposal. I mean, very casual. And, and then the, the editor said, if you want us to do the submission, you should do an introduction to the book and then I can, I can submit your little chapter with that. And we did, then we did that. And then he said, you know, you should do a section on how to, how to dig and put a tree in so that way have a chunk of the book so that people can see what it's like. And then we did that and submitted it. And he said, this is good. And then we'll all take a vote. And um, they all unanimously voted for it to be, published, which is great. So yeah, it went a very untraditional route in that sense. Because we have no experience as authors. As writers. (laughs) But just so you know, the original thought of the book was 75 fruiting plants, and we were going to be including a sizable section on house plants. Scott's kind of referred to that earlier in this discussion about plants that you can take inside and outside of your house, let's say like a Meyer lemon, or one of the ones that we really like is a dwarf tamarillo that 
fruiting plants that are actually fruit for us during the summer. And then you can bring them indoors and enjoy them as your house plant. So that's the next and, book. As well as, <laughs> I, yes. think, I think so. That's, that's, that's exactly uh-huh. right. Yeah. Well, the publisher wisely said, this is your first book. Why don't we have it be a little bit smaller? And then yeah. you would break that. If this is, does well for you, you can then write a second book. So it's less risk for you and less risk for us. That way it's a more yeah. concise book. You have enough with just 50. And I'm grateful plants. they yes. made that yes, decision. Yes, we are very grateful. <laughs> It was an immense amount of work writing a book. Right. And all the photography Scott and I did, and that's all from, everything is from the Arboretum. It's beautiful, and it's incredibly informative. I cherish it. It's one of my favorite resources now, and it also is inspiring. I'm going to be out there planting. I've been pestering people at nurseries about mulberries and gojis, and some of them looked at, right. looked at me strangely, but I'm going to find them no matter what. If somebody's listening and they want to come visit the Arboretum, I assume they can't just come and knock on your door. How do they do that? Well, people do. We, <laughs> we, we prefer, however, what we've kind of created now is that we're open on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and sometimes certain holidays. So what you could do is go to our website, which is Hortus, spelled H-O-R-T-U-S, gardens.org. And if you go to the website, there's a, a visitor tab, and then you can click on that, and then you could just plan to visit. We kind of break it down into a morning or an afternoon visit, and it's by donation, pay as you wish. And then you could spend your morning or afternoon here. On and the weekends. On the weekends. We do offer different tours, so we do have a native tour, and we're going to be walking through the gardens and talking about both edible, so some native edible plants from our book, as well as some little known, uncommonly planted ornamental trees. And we want to show people the diversity of native plants that are not generally thought of as being native or not thought of as being useful. That sounds like book three to me. Yeah, we're up to book three. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) And I can tell you that they will let you come to their arboretum, even if there's been a tornado the night before. That's when we visited. (laughs) So under under any circumstance, you can visit, I think. And I think think that we've pretty much filled our allotted time. (laughs) So thank you so much for your time and expertise and mental challenges and medlar. And we'll come back and visit again soon, I'm sure. Please do. We're we're very appreciative of your interest in us. Yes, thank thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. That concludes another episode of Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. We would like to thank Sandra Linnell and Devin Connolly from Cornell Cooperative Extension of Columbia and Greene Counties for production support. And a special thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. You can find links to any of the topics mentioned in this episode at our website at ccecolumbiagreen.org. Comments and suggestions for future topics may be directed to us at columbiagreenmgb at cornell.edu or on the CCE Master Gardener Volunteers of Columbia and Green County's Facebook page.
For more information about Cornell Cooperative Extension of Columbia and Greene Counties, visit our website at ccecolumbiagreen.org or visit us in Hudson or in Acre. Cornell Cooperative Extension provides equal programming and employment opportunities 